On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about gas prices. There is a gas war going on right now. What I don't understand, who benefits? I mean, other than the consumer. We'll take it. But from the companies, how does this help them? Well, we'll try and sort that out. Also, 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. It's a massive and important time because so many millennials especially don't know anything about this. We're going to be talking to a Burlington man who was in Auschwitz, who survived somehow. You're going to want to hear his story. It is remarkable. Then Don Robertson sticks around. We talk some sports just to lighten things up a bit at the end. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Some of you listening right now are probably sitting in a line waiting to get some cheap gas because heaven knows cheap gas doesn't come along very often. Prices have been seemingly very high, over $1.10 for weeks and weeks and weeks now. Well, all of a sudden, within the last couple days, they've plunged down in some cases to $0.90, cents, in some cases below $0.90 cents a liter. So my question is why? Why does it happen? And what is the upside to the gas companies to do this when they're not going to keep these prices here for a long time? Well, Let us bring in our good friend, Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business. Marvin, thanks for doing this today. Glad to be here. Uh, Let's answer that first question first. The gas companies who are now engaged in this gas price war, which by the way, as consumers, we don't mind one bit. I'm not complaining in any way, but they are still, as I understand it, buying their gas for a dollar, a dollar two a liter. Now they're selling it at a eight, nine, 10 cent loss. Why? Yes. So here's the most common uh, explanation, although it doesn't apply to this case. The most common explanation is that I have a commodity which is very highly price-sensitive for consumers. Now, that does work here. We'll drive around for hours to save a nickel on a liter of gasoline. So we're highly price-sensitive. But the other thing that typically triggers it is that I'm the new kid on the block. No one knows that I exist. I need to do something to get out there and get a little piece of the market, get a little piece of that market share. So how I'm going to get your attention is by coming in at a low price, uh, and that will trigger then a reaction from the people around me. Here in, I, I live out in Dundas, but in the west end of Hamilton, I sometimes call it the Costco effect. Costco doesn't need to make as much money on gasoline because they just want you to come to their store and buy other things. And I've noticed whenever Costco is open, the price of gasoline in the west end of Hamilton goes down about a nickel a liter because Costco comes in at that price. As soon as the Costco gas bar shuts down, every price goes right back up again. So there's a nighttime price, there's a daytime price. Now, that's the typical reason for it. That's not the case here. There isn't somebody new in the market who suddenly has dropped the price to get attention. So I think we have to look at a broader set of issues. And we've got a bit of a perfect storm going on right now. First, we've got oil prices that are, uh, if I'm Alberta, I must be crying at night. They're down to $52 a barrel. It wasn't that long ago they were $60 a barrel. So that big price drop, ooh, that causes gasoline to get a little cheaper. And then we have another problem, and I know you're going to wince when you hear this, but we have a gasoline glut. We have a lot of gasoline out in the marketplace. Last week we had a report out of the United States. The expectation was there was about, you know, 500,000 gallons a day, too much gasoline out there. Well, actually they said it's 1.7 million uh, gallons of gasoline too much floating out there. So you've got a situation where, which is just ripe for somebody to say, well, you know, we got to move this gasoline. We just can't leave it in storage. Let's try playing with the price. And it seems that once one tries, the other people are trying. 
your next question should be, how long is it going to last? And, and since I can't point to one specific triggering event, I actually don't know exactly how long it's going to last. Your advice was absolutely correct, though. Get it while you can because it really won't last for a long, long time. Well, I was going to ask how long it was going to last, because you told me it was going to be a good question, and I thought it would be, but you beat me to it. <laughs> this then... Asked and answered as you're yes, saying in the Senate. Exactly. You saved me some time. The uh, So, as I understand it, most often, you're absolutely correct, and to no surprise, that it's either someone who's trying to get attention, or it's the big, big companies. When it's the big companies, and apparently that's what's happening in this particular case, is it a predatory thing? We are just going to try and crush the independents, as few of them as there are, these days we're going to, this is our chance to try and really like come down with an iron fist on one of these ones and get rid of a few in the market? Well, it would be lovely if I thought that was going to happen, but there, there is only one winner in a price war, and that is the consumer, you and I. Unless it were to go on for two, three, four, five months, any business should be able to withstand some short-term damage. In other words, as you pointed out, even if I'm losing money selling gasoline for this week or next week, I can probably make up some of that loss on the lottery ticket you buy or the bag of chips or the bottle of pop that you buy. I may not be hurt all that much, and if it's only for a week or two, I don't think you're going to significantly wound anybody. Uh, I actually wondered if it was the opposite. I was wondering if it was some independent stations that triggered it because their economics are different than some of the big chain stores. But um, it's not clear who started it, and it's really not clear to me what they're going to gain by the time this is all said and done. Well, I want to get to that after the break, but just before I do, you mentioned Costco. Costco's prices, and I'm not selling for Costco. We make no money off Costco on this show, but their prices, as you've said, are always lower why does a price war kick in when someone else lowers their prices as opposed to just going to Costco any day of the week when they're already lower? Yeah, so it's, it's a price sensitivity thing. That, that Because we are so highly price sensitive, uh, maybe, I don't, maybe I don't have a Costco membership. Maybe I don't shop at Costco, Fair but enough. I'm certainly aware of their price. So when I go to the Shell or the Petro-Canada, I'm sitting there grumbling, yeah, you guys, what do you So it's worth the company to try to match them to keep some contented customers and to not give me a reason to suddenly say, well, wait a minute, if I had up all my gasoline prices over the year, hey, I could afford to buy a Costco membership. I don't want you doing that calculation. So it's worth my while to follow the leader in this situation and match them to keep you from maybe drifting away. It's saving you 10 cents a liter and you wait in line for 45 minutes for five bucks, I guess that's okay for some, you know, and then maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. I, I, what do you do, Marvin? Is five bucks for waiting in line for 45 minutes a good, uh, good use of your time? Well, I'm, I'm going to sound terrible here. Not for me. If I think of the minimum wage, I'd be earning less than the minimum wage, and as a university professor, I'm paid a lot more than the minimum wage. I'm not interested in that. Now, look, I'm not opposed to saving $5.00. If there's no line and I can pull in and make magic happen, why wouldn't I do that? Even, by the way, if, if you're in line to save $0.10 cents a liter and there's no line at the place where I save $0.08 cents a liter, I actually am better off to go to the $0.08 cent a liter. I, no, I would agree. I would agree. It's, it's an interesting one. I, I, don't, I can't bring myself to line up for half an hour for a few cents on the liter. If someone wants to drop it a buck a, a gallon or a buck a liter, then okay, but I haven't seen that yet. Uh, I should tell you, I am just a little worried because I've also noticed people not simply lining up and waiting, but when it is their turn, 
They fill their car. They fill every available container they can find. <laughs> true. And I'm serious about this. I yeah. am a little worried about how people are storing this gasoline. I would not be surprised. I, ha- I, hate- I hope I'm wrong. I hope Mr. Crystal Ball is really cloudy. But I wouldn't be surprised to see some kind of a fire story later this week from someone who thought they were saving all this money, improperly stored the gasoline, and the next thing you know, you've got a fire in your garage. Let us, let us pray no. Okay, a couple things. Uh, during the break, we had a caller call in, and they were referring to something you said about how we have this glut of oil now in the in the country, and they asked a question. I want to see if you know anything about this. They said they had been reading that if our refineries are not operating at almost 95% of capacity, financially it's not worth them even operating anymore. Is that right? I haven't heard a number that high. There, for any, any business, take Stelco or DeFasco, there is a, a number that you need to be at to be making money. And it's a lot more than just being at 5% capacity or 10% of the capacity. The number I've always worked with was 75%. Now, it may simply be that given the lower price per barrel of oil, uh, it's gone up a little bit for them to make money at this. But I don't think they have to be at 95 I, I would think you know, 80 85 would be plenty. Still but a yeah, high number. You've got to run it full tilt. Okay, now the big question about this that I really don't understand uh, with the gas price wars. If I own a, pick anything, if I own a restaurant, for example, I want you to come into my restaurant because if I serve you the most delicious food at an appropriate price, chances are you're going to come back because you're going to remember that meal. Or if you buy clothes from me or whatever else. Mm -hmm. But I don't see anybody who has loyalty in the gas business. You described how people will drive halfway across the city. They'll always go where the lower price is. So what's the advantage to one of these gas stations to having a price war, knowing that you're not building loyalty, you're just losing money that day? Mm -hmm. So if I go back to my first scenario to you, if I was the new kid on the block, how do I even let you know that I'm alive? By doing it for a day or two or a week, at least I've burned myself into your brain. Now, you may not choose to come back, but at least I've made an impression on you. That's when I think a price war makes some sense to me. Since this is all going on between established people, uh, I doubt anyone is visiting a station that they've never visited before. It's not really uh, anything new to build awareness. And as you correctly point out, this is a highly price-sensitive commodity about the next best thing I can get to is with grocery stores, put milk on sale. Milk is milk is milk, so you'll go for the cheapest place. You're not building much loyalty here. So honestly, I, I would never tell a company to do this, but if some company, for whatever reason, feels they've got these big stores of gasoline, they've got to move, and they're prepared to do this for you, don't ask questions, just take advantage of it. Do you have any idea, and I I really don't because it never occurs to me, do you have any idea how much business gas stations do, what percentage of their business is in ancillary things? When you buy your gas, you're also going to go in and buy a pack of gum or anything else that's there because they have all all kinds of stuff. But is that a big part of their business? Yeah, so simply put, the answer is yes. 20 years ago, you used to have just a gas station, and you went and you got gas, and that was it. And the innovation in the last 20 years have been to combine the gas station with something else. So maybe it's a, a gas station with a variety store. Maybe it's a gas station that has a variety store and a Tim Hortons, or it has a fast food outlet. And why they've done it is those other things they can actually make more money on. Your typical gas station, not the gasoline company, not Shell or Esso, but the station itself doesn't actually make a whole lot of profit on every bit of gasoline it sells. It's probably on the order of about two to three cents a liter. Uh, Now, they can make money on volume, but anything they can do that gives them a better profit margin. So, for instance, pop, 
you go in there and you buy a two-liter uh, Coke or Pepsi, what have you, for $2.99, I guarantee you they're making more profit out of that bottle than probably the tank you filled up. So that's why they're doing it. They're looking for other ways that they can make their money. And today, at least half of the profit, if not more, comes from the ancillary items, not the basic gasoline that they're selling. So that could explain then the where you can possibly make some money if you're losing your money on gas. If we can oh, get absolutely. you absolutely, to... and, and that's even why when you go into pay, they'll say, "Oh, a lottery ticket," and you might say, "Well, look, I'm saving all that money. Yeah, I'll take a lottery ticket." because they get much more profit there. So uh, I'm not crying for them. I don't think anyone's going to go out of business again. That's why I'm saying if you're doing it for competitive reasons, you're not going to force anyone out of business, but they're also not going to fold because they're losing money as long as they've got these ancillary sorts. If you are a pure gas station, yes, that's where it really hurts. Marvin Ryder, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Yeah, glad to be here. And if you're out there again waiting for your gas, hopefully you save loads of dough. And if you really want to save money then, not to hurt the gas stations, but don't buy the pop in the store. Just get your gas and boom, out of there. We'll see how well you do. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today is the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. January 27, 1945, the Soviet army moved in and took control. Now, of course, Auschwitz wasn't the only death camp that was built and operated by the Nazis during the Second World War, but I think inarguably it's the most famous. It has become a symbol of the atrocities of what man can do to man, and it remains in place today. People still go and visit as a reminder of that, an important reminder of that. Not a fun reminder, but an important reminder of that. It is disheartening, I'm not going to lie, to read some of the stuff I have in the last couple days that half of Canadians, fewer than half of Canadians, according to a poll, can tell you how many Jews were killed in the Holocaust. And just half, just over half of millennials in this country cannot name a single concentration camp. And here's the most startling one. 22% of millennials say they had never heard of the Holocaust. One in five say they've never heard of the Holocaust. So three quarters of a century later on this anniversary, it is important to remember that there were real human beings, real people, this black and white images that we see now, but real people who were there, flesh and blood people who were tortured and killed. Burlington's Frank Junger was one of those, and he joins us now. Frank, thanks for doing this today. You're welcome. I'm listening to you, and I'm interested in saying what you want to know. Well, it's been 75 years now. Now, you came to Canada after the war. You've had, as I understand it, a pretty good life. But I, I got to believe that even after all these years, there's a lot about those days when you were in Auschwitz that you still remember quite clearly. Anybody that survived the Holocaust and survived the death camps has not led a normal life. We, we had a dual, duality of life. Yes, I, I'm, I was successful in life. But I led a dual life. One was with, within myself, and the other one for the normal life to project everybody else. But it, it has never changed. Uh, I'm still. I'm, I'm now 89 years old, and I'm still as upset now as I was when I was liberated. How? For the, sim- for the simple reason that there was no retribution for the for the the people that committed these heinous hmm. crimes. Frank, how did you end up at Auschwitz? Well, <clears throat> on on March the seventeenth, the Hungarian, the Romanian, the German army moved into Hungary, and within two days uh, they occupied the town that I lived in, 
and uh, within three within two weeks they canceled the school and uh, they started with the anti-jewish laws jews couldn't hold the positions in government couldn't hold positions in education or, or the only place they could still survive on was in the health health services At any rate um, uh, within four weeks thereafter they took us to what they called the ghetto and the ghetto wasn't a a house or, or a street or or even a industrial plant. In our case, it was a uh, lumber yard, uh, which was actually a, a dry kiln yard where, where the lumber was stacked on, on stilts, and there was no size. At any rate, it was very cold in the nights, and, of course, food was rationed. And on the 19th of, of May, uh, they deported us to Auschwitz. We got there on a Friday morning on the 24th of, Jan- of, of May, the 1944. Did you know what Auschwitz, what, when you pulled up, were you in one of the train cars, by the way? Was I what? Were you in the trains that came in there on those famous train tracks? Yes, I was. Actually, the, ironically that you mentioned it, I was, uh, we, I was familiar with the cattle cars because uh, we, we had a large farm at one time, and, and, and my fa- father was supplying the, the Hungarian army with livestock. At any rate, the minute I saw the railroad cars, I jumped up, and the railroad cars were set up, I mean, the cattle cars, rather. They had a ledge on either side, and on that they used to put fodder, and they had six rings on either side, so you could put three cattle on either side of it, okay, and I jumped up and I took the position right on top of the ledge which was under the the window that, that you see sometimes in railroad cars that was all covered up with barbed wire. And uh, around 5 o'clock, or I didn't have any watch or something, and just at, at dawn on Friday morning I looked up and I saw that iconic building where the, you, you see the depiction of Birkenau, where the big door and on either side there is a wing mm. and the railroad cars were being shuttled in and that's how I ended up and I ended up there They, uh, when we ended up there that well I don't know if chaos is the right word but uh, pandemonium and chaos combined if it's possible uh, men and women were sent to one side together and children and, and women at any rate, uh, obviously they separated me, my, my father and I, and my mother held the hand of a little six-year-old boy. What was that? That's okay. I held the hand of a six-year-old boy, and they were both sent to the other side. And ironically, uh, I, I wasn't robust or anything, but when, you, when you're down to your last holdings or last personal belongings, uh, my mother and my father made me put on my heavy coat and everything, so I looked like I looked like a, a mannequin with a big coat with nothing inside type of thing, if you understand my analogy. And I was selected with my father, okay? And then they walked us from there to a closet hunt. They made us all this, this, this rope, then they, they shone our hair and our pubic hair. I wasn't, I was just 13 years old, so nothing in that. Uh, the only thing we could keep was our shoes, and they immersed, immersed our shoes in some foul-smelling and 
liquid and uh, you know today everything is synthetic but in those days shoes were made out of leather and if you immerse leather in water or liquid they after they dry out they shrink so everybody had problems fitting into their own shoes. We read in historic reports that 80% of the people who got off those trains and got brought into Auschwitz were killed almost immediately. How did you not die right off the bat? That is absolutely correct. If you were selected for, for, for labor, then you lasted another six weeks. The life expectancy was six weeks. And as, as much as I don't think I'm unique in any way, I lasted there for over six and a half months. Now, I've been selected three times to be killed, and to get into the details how I get out of it is is actually unbelievable, okay? Even if I think, I know I did it, and I don't know how it went, but if I was to tell somebody, uh, I, there would be a question of incredulity, so I'm not going to get in that, but I can tell you that, that I was selected three times. Did you, when you arrived in the train, though, that must have meant that many of the people you had traveled with were taken immediately, immediately and killed? to the other side, immediately. And then when they took us, the ones that were selected, let's say percentage-wise, the 20%, as I said, they, they took our clothes away, they uh, shore our hairs, etc. At any rate, after that, they, they gave us a pair of trousers, uh, no underwear, no socks. And a shirt, not a shirt, it's a Nero jacket, like a, it's, a, it's a shirt jacket, which was made out of uh, uh, cotton, all right, but it was uh, worn and, and ripped and everything else. Anyway, the sizes didn't fit, obviously, and right after that, they took us back to sea lager. Half of that was for women and half of that was for men. Now, we were rushed into the, or shoveled into the barrack, and um, we were told to assign to each one, to each six people to assign to one of those bunks, and uh, we, were, we had to lay down like sardines. Somebody's head was against somebody's foot because there wasn't enough space. And um, th- this was on Friday night, and then, of course, now bear in mind that we had not even water or food since Wednesday night. Wednesday night was the last time that they did give us some, not food, but water. And um, I can tell you that um, thirst is is much worse than hunger. Thirst you can cope with, but hunger is, uh, is, is something different. At any rate, um, uh, this went on, and, and one Friday about 6 o'clock, they made us stand in the pillow, roll call, and uh, most of the kids or most of the people, well, you have to understand that the people under 18 went conscripted in the Hungarian labor battalions and people over 45 were uh, exempted. So all, you, all they had is, is people under 18 and people over 45. So, I mean, they, they, these, none of us were amicable to military discipline or, or uh, marching or... or Standing in a still. Anyway, they bought up a couple of. Uh, well, now it's the the garbage pails are now plastic. But when I came to Canada, they were still made out of out of um, sheet metal, galvanized sheet metal. And uh, they bought up the stuff, the food, and it was liquid. 
and we had no utensils, uh, no spoons or nothing, so we had to line up and cup our hands and try to uh, slurp the liquid that spilled into your hand and spilled on the ground. And uh, I have to interject something here. When I got there, I was fluent in four languages, okay? I'm not just a Hungarian, so I actually spoke German, and I understood everything. And the SS were laughing, and they said, look at these. Jewish Schweinhund, which means the uh, Jewish uh, pigs, uh, po- uh, pig dogs, or dog pigs, or whatever. Schwein is, is pig, and mm-hmm. hund is, is dog. Look how they eat. And of course, uh, I, I I thought to myself, well, what would be the reverse if we if you were hungry? I haven't had anything since Monday, and and uh, you had no utensils. How would you eat? I mean, because people like the ground with a little bit of. Uh, warm crap or junk that, that they gave us, you were lucky to find a beet or, mm. or a piece of cabbage or a piece of rotten potato. I mean, you, your caloric intake was was regulated at approximately 360 calories a day. So you can imagine how, how emaciated people became very quickly. Did you, Frank, did you believe that you were going to die there? Well, at that time, I had no idea because this was on, on Friday, and on Saturday morning, they told us that, that we're going to see our, the people that we that they separated us from. This is my mother, obviously, and the other people, other people from the town, uh, on the weekend. And um, uh, then on on Saturday night, uh, they separated my me, myself from my father. And on Mon- on Sunday, I never saw my father ever. And on Monday, uh, about noon or before noon, they, they they you have to understand something. If everybody eats at the same time, that their bodily movements are the same time type of thing. So usually they took us around ten, eleven o'clock to a barrack which was full of as a latrine, and it has a it had a. Uh, it had a, a, a pipe and a trough that the water was coming out to wash. And as I came out, the band came up to me, and luckily he spoke right away. But and he said, put his arm on me, and he said, how old are you? So I said, I'm 13. And he said, no, he says, if anybody asks you, 15. And I said, why? You just listen to me, he said. And I said, why should I listen to you? What, who are you or what? And um, he said, well, I had a son exactly like you. And, and then he pointed to the fire. There were four crematoria chimneys spewing uh, uh, flames out. Like, I don't know if you remember, there used to be refinery in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, They flared the gas. The, the, the flames would shoot up 15, 20 feet or more uh, in the air. And the, the flames were coming up. And... He said to me, he says, where are your parents? I said, well, my mother went to the other side. So he said, well, if you're religious, you got to say your prayers for your mother. As, you know, the Jewish people honor their dead by, by not just uh, as a matter of, of filial devotion, but as a matter of religious devotion. And you have to say prayer twice a day. So I said, well, why? Well, what are you talking about? He says, well, they're already in heaven, okay? Most, as I understand, of the people who ended up in Auschwitz got a number tattooed on them, a registration number. Do you have that tattoo? Yes, I 
do, unfortunately. Do you still have it? Yes. Do, are, is it? Can you tell us the number? Do you? Do you? I'm sure B, you know it off by heart. B one four five five eight. Something you never forget. No, I was asked a number of times if I wanted tattooed over, like to be taken off. I said, "Well, will that obliterate my memories?" And they said, "Unfortunately, no." So. And yet some people have done that. Why have you not done that? Because it would be a horrible memory to look at that all the time and see it. Well, let me tell you something. If you're crippled, you, you need to be, if, if you wear prosthetic, you don't, you don't think that you know that you're crippled? So it's, it does, taking it, it off doesn't, doesn't change what, what happened. You, what you have, it's not, it, it's only a sign. It, it is. It, 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 it would never obliterate the memories that I have. It, it will never change anything one iota. It, 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 what they did to you and what they did to most of us as a young kid, to me, I can't tell for everybody else. Yes, I can. Some people have a tendency to remember the, the better things and forget the bad things. Now, when I was liberated, I got tried to figure out why did this happen? How could it have happened? And I immersed myself in reading and studying volumes and volumes of history, philosophy, religion, and I, I can give you rough ideas why, but nobody can ever give you a definitive answer, okay? The only thing I can tell you that we as humans were, were carnivorous, were, 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 and... and Real carnivores will eat, kill to eat, but human beings will kill just for the fun of it. We're the worst species of, 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 of sapiens that has ever lived on the planet. Not only are we destroying our own planet, we're killing each other for nothing, for no reason. Frank, has anybody, especially children, have anybody ever come up to you and asked you about that tattoo? Yeah, I, I spoke, uh, I used to speak at seminars, I spoke at McMaster University, I used to go to college, collegiates and high schools. They all asked me about it, but it's very, it's, it's incomprehensible for people to understand because they have not lived through the, the, the psychological aspect of it. They don't know what it is to be discriminated against, they have no idea how painful it is. You know what they say? They say the opposite that sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but names will never bother me. Well, it's exactly the opposite. Sticks and stones will will you will forget, but but uh, words, hateful words, and 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 what they did, you will never forget. How often? And I'm going to let you go after this because I really appreciate you taking the time. How how often do you think about Auschwitz? Does it come up regularly well, or on anniversaries let me, only? Let me, let me put you this way: as I told you at the beginning, I lived a dual life. I lived a normal life again, my 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 family and my friends, and I lived in a life internal life that was uh, how can I put it? It's inferno. Okay, uh, but uh, I there is an an an, an, an like uh, I see a mother holding a child's hand and uh, a picture flashes back, my mother holding the little boy's hand and walking down the, the steps to the gas chamber. Uh, I, I hear, uh, this you might not know, but I will tell you that, uh, I'll tell you this part. Anyway, um, a, f- a friend of mine, unfortunately we are getting, we're, uh, we're uh, uh, rapidly diminishing numbers of 
survivors. I had four friends that we were more or less the same age, um, and uh, two of them just passed away last, one is September, one in last August, and there's there's only two of us left. One lives in in, in Spring, in uh, Wood, uh, what is it, where does Emily live? Emily, where does he live? In Michigan. Michigan, Bloomfield, Michigan, okay. There's two of us left only, okay. Now, the, uh, George's father, the one that passed away last September, his father was a dentist, and he was selected to work at the crematoria, okay. You know what, you've heard of that. Yes, you? yes. You know, after they gas the people, they... Usually the gas chambers were downstairs, and they brought them up on trolleys, and they, they laid them out, and they had to open their mouths and take out their their teeth, their their, um, their dentures, and their gold or silver teeth. Okay, and he bribed one of the guards, and he came to the to the gate uh, to the fence in June, uh, end of June, 1944, and he asked for me to come. Now, I can tell you, I, I can get into it why, but I just told you that I spoke four languages, but his son, he spoke Hungarian, okay? So the North languages you understand, and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Like they say, little knowledge is dangerous. At any rate, he, he, I, we went to the gate, and, and he, he explained to me what was going on in the gas chambers and how, what they did, okay? So... I, I mean, I, I know exactly how they did it, and they, they told me, he says, if you think that the gas is bring, there's a gas pipe leading into the gas chambers, you're wrong. He says, watch every time the transport comes, they have an um, a ambulance with the klaxon gone coming up to the top, and watch them that they dump cyclone gas B from cans into a chute that leads into the gas chambers. So at any rate, uh, with great difficulty, we climbed up on top of the top layer of the bunk, and we looked out and we saw that. And then, and again, uh, as I told you, I, after this man on Monday told me what happened, I told my friends, and they were incredulous. They didn't believe it. It took them four or five weeks to realize that what happened to all those people that they separated us. So where are they? There is, there's no accommodation. There is. There's no bunks. There is no. There's no nothing. Marriage. There is no. There's nothing. It was just an open field. So I mean, you, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, they all have gone. To Frank, somewhere. Frank, yeah, it's it's such a terrible story. I wish we could talk much much longer. I've got to go to the news break, but I I okay, sincerely well, if appreciate you. Want to you. talk to me? Call me, and I will talk to you privately. I, I will do. Frank okay. Younger. Thanks. Thank There's you very much. My wife wants to say something. Yeah. Oh, no, I got, we got to run, Frank. Thank you so much. We got to go to a news break. What a, uh, more on this later on. We'll be talking about it more. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, I watched, I tried to watch, I, I have to say tried. I tried to watch a few minutes of the NHL All-Star game on the weekend. I can't do it. And I thought once upon a time, the three-on-three, three, because it's so good in overtime and regulation in the regular season, I thought that when they switched to a three-on-three three tournament format, this is going to be good. This is going to open things up. We're going to see amazing stuff. And I think the first year they did the three-on-three, three, it was pretty good. And then I watched this one, and it was so abundantly clear that these guys were not even breaking a sweat. They weren't even trying. 
it was it was awful to watch this stuff. It was unwatchable pap. And I'm trying to think, is there any reason to continue with this? Because it's just, you've exhausted every idea, and it's just absolutely horrible. You're a better man than me because you tried to watch it. Didn't last long, but I tried. And uh, I'm a little surprised, but the reason they went to three-on-three, methinks, is because the five-on-five was five guys out there not trying. Yep. So what they've done is they've cut two guys out that aren't trying, and now they have three. Now, with that skill that was there, if those guys went all out, three on three, it could be as entertaining a way to watch hockey that's ever been conceived. Because you see it during the regular season, and you see it in our league. I mean, it's a lot of fun to watch. When the guys are going and, and, and there's something on the line to win. But when you offer these guys a hundred grand, and the poor guy out there's making six point eight million, that's that's a pretty tough stretch to think that unless the money is over the top, why bother? Sure. But okay. So if money can't get these guys to try, and look, I understand you don't want to injure yourself, you don't want to be tired, blah blah blah. So. Add another 50% to the size of the rosters so you can have guys go hard and they only play every fourth shift. So you, 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 you can go really hard for the time you're on the ice, but you don't have to play that much so you're not going to be exhausted. Like, do something. But it was... Don, I've seen greater effort at a senior's home ping-pong tournament. Like, it's just... Like, there was nothing. They were standing around looking so disinterested... And you want to know why it really stood out? Because the night before, on Friday night, I watched the women's three-on-three. Now, I know they're playing for a different reason. They are trying to convince the NHL and other investors that there should be a women's professional league. There is something on the line for the women. That was a great game. That was highly entertaining because they were killing themselves out there for 20 minutes, going end-to-end-to-end-to-end. it showed me on Friday how entertaining it can be if you can just convince some of the guys to put the effort in. So there's got to be some way to do it. Money. Well, clearly you just said though, money's not going to do it. A million dollars a guy will. I don't even know if I don't even know if that's a million a million dollars per guy. Maybe. Yeah. But who's going to who's going to pay a million? You've got a team of twelve guys, whatever. It is. You're not going to put twelve million dollars in. You're not going to do. I mean, well, it's a, it's a it's a I mean, the whole thing is very much like the Super Bowl, other than the Super Bowl matters to the players. It's a really sponsor-oriented event. Like all the major sponsors have They're glad hands. and get to take clients and customers and whatnot, and you, they give kids out to the skills competition, tickets to the skills competition, right? So it's hard to make it meaningful. Did you watch any of the Pro Bowl game? Oh, that's even worse. So the only all-star game probably that's played at a normal rate is baseball. Pretty close. Because the pitcher's going to still try and throw at 90 miles an hour for his one inning, and the guys are all still going to try and hit. And, you know, they got to run things out. Now, the only thing that they can slack off in is running to first base or not trying to steal and hurt themselves. But other than that, it's pretty much a real game, pitcher batter. 
but that's not the case in, in contact sports. So here's, here's my suggestion, which will never in a trillion years be accepted by the NHL. But if you want to make the All-Star game, if you want to make them play, the way the playoffs are set up right now, three teams from every division get into the playoffs, and there's two wildcard teams. Guarantee that the winner of the All-Star game tournament gets four spots in the playoffs, and there's only going to be one wild card in that conference. So if your division wins, a fourth team gets into the playoffs. That would guarantee a lot of those guys who are fighting for a playoff spot that they're going to make it into the playoffs. I think it would depend on the standings. Most years. Look at the standings this year. If you were to say the Metropolitan Division, which was a pretty good division, it's, it's a great division this year, some really good team is going to miss the playoffs, and it's almost any one of those teams could miss the playoffs. We guarantee you that rather than three teams where one of you is going to be out, four of your teams make it into the playoffs. Guarantee you that they would work hard for that. Yeah, but I. But but if 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 there's a bunch of teams, well, the the Leaf guys would have been more interested in a scenario like that. So you're going to have some guys that are going to go out there and bust their butt, versus other guys that are going. We're in first place. Like, we yeah, don't but care. there's no team in first place by a lot right now. There's well, no, no team at the All-Star game that is so locked into first it's, place. Look, at, it sounds like a lot better idea than what they're doing now. There's no question about that. But Now, they'll never right. do it. They'll, I mean, you're, you're trying to find a way to make the games more real and the competition more real. That might work. But didn't baseball get rid of that this year? Pretty much. Yeah, that, that's why I'm saying they're never going to do it because they look at baseball who got rid of a playoff yeah. situation. Home home, home field advantage in the World Series. And, you know, the thing is, my idea, while I do think it legitimately would get guys playing hard, at the general manager's meeting, all it would take is the first time your team ends up as the team that doesn't make the playoffs because of the all-star game because another team in another division gets in and you say, this is the stupidest idea ever conceived. Why did baseball stop it? I don't know. Partially because the there was a feeling that it was not really right to give World Series home field advantage based on an all-star game because... But the difference with that one is in the baseball all-star game, you've only got two teams, first of all. Yeah. And you know going into the season this year, Don, there are f- four teams in the American League and four teams in the National League that are going to win. So if you're playing, if you're on the whomever, if you're on the Pittsburgh Pirates, you know this all-star game is meaningless to you. Or the Toronto Blue Jays. Or the Toronto Blue Jays. You know that the all-star game is essentially meaningless well, to that you. Was, but that was, that was my point. If your team is right out of it, Edmonton are in the mix this year. But oftentimes in the past few years since uh, Pat LaForge hasn't been president, the Oilers have been right out of it. Is that going to make Connor McDavid try any harder so somebody in his division gets an extra playoff spot? I don't, not convinced that it happened. Well, except that, uh, as I'm looking at this right now, let me go into the division here for a second. I'm just pulling up the uh, the standings if my computer here will ever get going. Um, that most teams, almost every team, would have huge. Like, there's very few teams that are really out of it right now. There's very few teams that are really out of it. So yeah, so your your representative from the Detroit Red Wings is probably not going to help you out too much. But that's one guy. And you know what you got to hope, and it could happen. What you got to hope is that your division doesn't have four really crappy teams that are out of it. 
could happen, but anything can happen. It's it would be so much better than watching a bunch of guys stand around and play what they did, which is glorified broom ball, so that at the end of the All Star game nobody had to take a shower. <laughs> I mean, it was just truly unwatchable crap. It really was. And you know, I don't I believe the other thing. Do you think that what do you think the chances are that if we were to take this back twenty years ago? maybe more than that, 25 years ago, if Wayne Gretzky or Mario Lemieux, and I'll use those two guys, or Bobby Orr, but somehow Gretzky always seems to jump out. If he was playing in an all-star game, could you ever imagine him just screwing around and not trying? Well, he played in a lot of them. And he always won the the MVP because he always tried. Yeah. But guys guys like that, um, like... Gretzky, guys like Gretzky were like Bobby Hull and, and uh, a few of them. They knew who was paying their wages. They knew the fans were important, and they had to put on a show because they came to see them play. Guys like that that have a lot of respect for the fans that, you know, you've heard uh, Gretzky in interviews saying, I always had to play my best because that might be the only time the kid that is at the game gets a chance to see me, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to let him down. So where is that today then? Where's that same attitude? And I'm not saying no players have it. I believe many guys do. Probably back when Gretzky was making $2 million a year and was the highest paid guy in the league. And now there's so many guys that score 20 goals that are making $7 million. I mean, I just, the world's changed. A lot of the revenue comes from TV now, like so many sports. And so I think it makes it a little bit more distant to the fans. And a lot of guys that, that play in front of half-full arenas say, well, I'm doing my best. I can't fill the rink. Nobody cares. Like I think it used to be a more fan-based league than it is today. And maybe I'm apologizing for a bunch of millionaire millennials. No, I just I, 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 I would like to believe that a lot of the guys who were on the ice were feeling embarrassed by showing up and doing what they did. Just playing like with no enthusiasm and no effort at all. I just, and you say, well, I don't want to tire myself out. I'm here. I I don't want to get injured, all that kind of stuff. That's all true. But if you're going to be on the ice, there should be, I'm not saying guys have to be flattening each other with massive body checks, but at least skate, at least use your speed, at least do the kind of thing that made you, people think you were worthy of being an all-star. Truly, you know what would be the real answer to this? Because they're not going to use my idea, my second idea for this then put out a questionnaire to the teams, to the players, and say, who wants to go to the All-Star game? Yeah, but that's back to the fact that I know this is true. It's a sponsor-driven event. I understand. I understand, but I'm just saying. So the sponsors don't want to see the hardest work in Edmonton Oilers go to the game. They want to see Connor McDavid. So have Connor McDavid and all those guys in the building, shaking hands with everybody and signing autographs and going from private box to private box and having a drink with the, with the sponsors and let the guys who want to play be out on the ice going hard in three on three. I don't think the world we live in is the same color as the sky you're looking at. (laughs) No, of course it isn't. Like these guys all want to go to the Bahamas for three days. Of course. And, and again, and the guys that are there would rather be in the Bahamas having course, a pina colada. Of course. And, uh, and they can afford to go wherever they want. And I'm not suggesting, as I say, I'm not suggesting that any of these ideas would be seriously considered because none of them will, because you're right. You have to see the best players on the ice and nobody wants to exert themselves because they don't even want to be there, even though they say how excited they are to be there. They don't even want to get hurt. The owners don't want them hurt. 
That's why they don't want to go to the Olympics when they're not in North America. So don't, okay, last idea then. Don't even have a game. Just have an expanded, prolonged skills competition with the different divisions. Well, that's what they're doing. Well, that's I know. That's what the three-on-three three is. Except they're not putting any effort in. If you, like, they tried in the skills competition. Connor McDavid and uh, what's his name, Barzal and all those guys, they tried in this, they were in the fastest skater. They weren't lollygagging around. They were going as hard as they could. So why would they do it so there? They went, so they went hard for 45 seconds. 13. There you go. But they did. Sounds in like the, me and my teenage so, years. So, so in the skills competition, they were willing to give a full effort. So just have an elongated skills competition then. Dump the game, come up with all kinds of other things you can do. Go back to a showdown format. Why don't they let the, so they should let the girls play longer and the guys play for 20 minutes. 100%. How, would it, how, how about a co-ed game then? If you're going to bring the women into it, let's have a co-ed game. Well, there's no hitting. Got to have one woman on the ice at all times. Not sure that sells. Really? I'm not sure it sells either. But at least you might be shamed into trying if they're trying. Although you'd probably just pull the women down and say, now they're not going to try because they see the guys. <laughs> and they go, well, I've, I'm not going to look like an idiot by trying out here when he's not going to. It, it, to me, Don, it was just, it was the skills competition thing, especially what they did where they added the, the really goofy skills. Did you see the, the no. thing where they were shooting from the stands? I don't watch any of it. So on, fr- on the Friday that. night when I was watching the women, because I wanted to tune in and see Laura Fortino and Sarah Nurse and Renata Fast, who were all from around here, uh, they had set up this extra skills competition thing where they set up a, a riser in the end zone on the second level, and you had to shoot off this thing into targets that were on the ice. How'd they do? They did okay. It was silly, It was, but it was fun silly. The gimmick, yep. And they brought in Brett Hull to take a shot, and they brought in uh, Keith Kachuk to take a shot with his kids and other St. Louis Blues guys and other stuff. It was fun, but at least they were trying in that because they don't want to look like a moron. You don't want to look like an idiot when everyone else around you is trying to do okay. So it's selective how they want it. It's selective effort. It was, but so if you're not going to try in a game... Let's set it up so we give you something where you will try, and at least we get to see your skills as opposed to what this was, which was, like, you may as well have served the pina colada right on the ice. <laughs> on the bench, they could have just had a bar with a slushy stand. They may have had one in the room. Well, they probably did. They probably did. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.